there is a directional effect in quantization so that basically the angular momentum is quantized leading to this effect. It's something that was implicitly clear before, like there was indirect um, proof of that, even though people weren't actually convinced that this effect would be there. It's the first direct um, proof of that this existed. It is a really, um, it is a pioneering experiment if you think about it. It's the first vacuum to that degree. It is the first molecular beam that they had to that degree. When that experiment was built, Bohr himself said that he didn't believe it might work. <laughs> well, the time of great confusion where um, well, this experiment just basically um, put a nail in the coffin of, uh, of classical mechanics. It was clear there's no way this could be described by anything else as by a new theory that was, um, that was about to appear. It should be emphasized that all theories that we have have untestable consequences. They're not directly accessible to us. The fact that we know that um, these kind of theories predict something like the multiverse so should get people into the business of thinking about whether it can be tested. If it can never be tested, it's not something we could waste our time with. If someone mm -hmm. has a brilliant idea um, of how maybe there is a test that nobody has thought of yet, then um, we should take into account because that could tell us whether these theories are right or not. Welcome, everyone, to this deep physics episode of Into the Impossible. Prepare to expand your science vocabulary and understanding as host Brian Keating and theoretical particle physicist extraordinaire Martin Bauer unpack one of the most seminal physics experiments ever done. Supported by Einstein himself, the Stern-Gerlach experiment has become a quantum mechanics benchmark that stands out over 100 years later. You're going to get an in-depth look at how science is done and the history of quantum mechanics. This live stream episode includes questions from you, our outstanding audience. If you appreciate hearing firsthand from scientists like Martin Bauer, please consider giving us a boost with a five-star rating. Keep in touch with Professor Keating by joining his email list at briankeating.com list to receive his Monday Magic newsletter. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a bit of space dust in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Please help make the show better by filling out our listener survey, link to in the show notes. And let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review, like this one from T.C. Cook. Such thoughtful, challenging, and interesting conversations. I learn a lot every time I listen. And now, enter the quantum realm as we go into the impossible with Brian Keating and Martin Bauer. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Everybody, you are in for a real treat today. Kind of an unusual uh, scenario where I have a, a friend in the internet age that I met from great distance, and he uh, has become a friend, but we haven't met in person, although we are going to meet in June when I give a talk at the Royal Institution. I will provide you more information about that soon, and that's Professor Martin Bauer. Uh, Martin is the an assistant professor. I, no, you're an associate professor, right? How does it work? Associate now, yeah. Associate now, congratulations. In the Department of Physics, uh, and he has been working, uh, this is at Durham, yeah? Right. And it has this uh, this moniker, this acronym in front, UKRI, which I know means United Kingdom Research Initiative, Research Initiative, and then FLF. What does that stand for? Oh, that's a um, Future Leader Fellowship, ah, which funds my research at the moment. That's phenomenal. So he is a current leader in the explication of some of the most difficult, hard to understand 
but in his capable mind and brain becomes uh, transparent even to simple experimentalists like yours truly. Uh, and Martin is, has a knack for that, and he's been doing that on Twitter. Uh, he's grown exponentially. And today we're talking because not of a book. Normally, Martin, we have authors that have written books. I hope you'll write a book someday and we'll uh, always have you back on the podcast whenever you're available. Uh, but he's on to discuss uh, a very important paper, which I encountered you know, 30 years ago as a beginning graduate student, and that's called the Stern-Gerlach experiment. And we'll talk about what that experiment has meant to physics. But the reason that he's on is because of a... Uh, of a chance, maybe serendipity brought him to this project, and that was uh, uh, by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who's a professor at the University of New Hampshire. And she uh, made a outrageous claim that this paper, which is so foundational, so fundamental, was not available in English. And, you know, I, I only know a couple words in German, uh, Martin, and one of my favorites uh, is Krankewagen. Are you familiar <laughs> with that word? Of course, yes. <laughs> Which I believe means ambulance uh, or, you know, cranky kids when I take my kids to school. Anyway, uh, Martin translated this paper. Uh, it's called uh, actually you should just read it because I want to hear your mellifluous uh, German accent. So if you would please indulge us with the actual German title in German of the paper that you translated, uh, sp sp uh, you know, spurred on by our, uh, our, our colleague uh, Chanda. So the paper is called um, Der Experimentelle Nachweis der Richtungsquantelung im Magnetfeld in German, which is actually not so easy to translate because Richtungsquantelung is um, something that doesn't really exist in that sense. And it's not something that um, um, was uh, has a direct translation into English. So what, what people did is uh, calling it space quantization. And it kind of matches what um, people had in mind back then when they did the experiment, but it's not actually what they discovered. But I, I'm sure we get to this. Yes. And what makes it so uh, so important to, to physics that would warrant it being translated only about 100 years after its uh, actual publication? What what does this experiment mean to, uh, to science uh, in general, but uh, specifically to, to quantum physics first? What was the immediate impact of this paper? So that, that, that's two different questions. So it, looking back, what they did is they discovered the spin of the electron. And um, they not only discovered the spin of the electron, they also discovered that the spin of the electron is quantized. So it can only have discrete values. It cannot have an arbitrary value like um, a classical angular momentum. Back then, what they were out to discover, or what they were out to disprove, at least half of them were out to disprove that, is um, uh, that thing that they called space quantization. That meaning that there is also just a discrete number of angular uh, momentum values, but for the atoms, for the whole atom. So Bohr had that idea. The Bohr um, atom model prescribes that the electrons surround the nucleus on some orbits. Right? We know now this is not an exact description, but back then, it was helpful to describe the Barnard series and dis discrete spectra, discrete lines, and uh, that that were discovered. And back then, um, there was uh, something like the called the Zeeman effect, line splitting in the magnetic field. And people back in the in the 1910s to 1920s, when this was discovered, tried to explain it within that model, and it didn't quite make sense. And uh, eminent physicists like Bohr himself and Sommerfeld. Um, had the idea that maybe this angular momentum that basically tells you the plane in which the electrons were about to rotate about the nucleus, 
um, can only have discrete values and can only point to certain directions. So um, Bohr said that that might be helpful in explaining it. And Sommerfeld actually had a paper where he said that this can have three values. It can be like aligned with the magnetic field or orthogonal to the magnetic field in two different directions. And then Stern and Gerlach set out to test that. They said, well, if that's the case, we can put on an inhomogeneous magnetic field um, that um, results in a force on, on anything that has a magnetic moment. And if this is true, we should ex observe a number of spots where these um, atoms end up once they traverse an inhomogeneous magnetic field. So that was the actual experiment. They had a little furnace, they had silver atoms, and they had the, the, with very, very much uh, at, the, at the forefront of the technology back then, they produced a vacuum, funneled them the, the silver atoms through a little um, little hole at the furnace, then through this magnetic field and put them on a little plate to see whether this discrete spectrum actually appears or whether there is a continuous spectrum, as you would expect if it was a classical angular magnetic moment. And so if you if you imagine you um, have a magnetic field and you move um, like a, a bar magnet through that field, depending on its orientation, it will be deflected up or down. And if it has some angle with the magnetic field, it will be deflected somewhere on the spectrum. And the quantum theory said that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you will only have a discrete number of spots um, on the screen because there cannot be any value of this angular momentum. It has to either align or misalign with the magnetic field. And Stern, who um, was the person who, who had the idea for the concept of this experiment, he actually didn't believe in the Bohr model at all. He wanted to disprove it. He had heard of this and he had thought about it. He said, well, if that's true, we should have seen it before. We have like, if you have like a hydrogen gas, for example, and you put light rays into the gas, there should be an effect um, that you see because the magnetic field of it, within the magnetic field, um, the the atoms would um, adapt and the light would be absorbed or not absorbed depending on how that looks like. So he was very skeptical. In fact, he, there's a famous quote of him um, that he's he's quoted as saying, "If if this nonsense of Bohr proves right in the end, I will quit physics." He was really <laughs> opposed to that idea. <laughs> Which I should add is something that uh, is to be said about physicists in general. You don't need to believe in the hypothesis that you are testing. Um, the, your motivation might as well be that you want to rule it out. Um, so, so he was strongly opposed to um, to this model, and he actually would have been very happy to find that it's not true. But um, alas, they found this spectrum. They found two spots, um, one up, like a, like a, a splitting in this in this line, and that proved in the end that uh, that was only a number of discrete possible values for this angular momentum. They didn't know that it has anything to do with the electron back then. They still thought they had proved the Bohr model. And they actually said in the postcard to Bohr, congratulating him, um, that he was right in the end. But uh, um, a couple of years later, it was it became clear what we have now in textbooks, that this experiment showed that the electron has a spin, a, a quantum angular momentum itself. And that which, was which responsible doesn't... for the effect. Which doesn't disprove the Bohr. I mean, the Bohr model is wrong. Let's let's get that out of the way, right? It, it's useful, but it's wrong. Right. And I think that has a lot of parallels to some of the scientific debates and disputes that you and I sometimes engage with our colleagues about uh, on Twitter and other uh, fora. And, and that's that you know something can be predictive and and actually correct in a certain level of approximation, but ultimately falsifiable. The atom is not a tiny little planetary system, uh, as we know now, but that was incredibly useful. And in fact, we can use it as we can use Newtonian gravity to get to the moon and the planets. We don't need Einstein for that. We can actually use it for 
most of the spectroscopy that that we would do in the lab where there aren't tiny little effects. One thing I've always wanted to ask you, Martin, um, and and as a as the token experimentalist, you know, who appears on my channel, uh, I I can always uh, ask these questions without fear of reprisal. But but that's um, is there such a thing as an unperturbed Adam, I mean, when I teach uh, quantum mechanics, we, we start off with the Schrodinger equation. We start off with uh, this notion that there is a little planetary system <laughs> uh, like Bohr and Vision. And then we broaden it out and we add in actual perturbations. And we'll talk about what is the perturbation that leads to the stern gerlach effect um, and that leads to the splitting. And why does it require an inhomogeneous magnetic field, not a homogeneous one? But is there such a thing as an unperturbed you know, system or is it only just sort of a useful uh, a, a useful paradigm in which to do predictions that for theorists. I mean, in a sense, it goes to the heart of quantum mechanics that you can't really have such a thing, um, or put otherwise. Say, for example, you you are a brilliant experimentalist who works on atomic physics, and you isolate an atom, you put it in a trap, and you shield it from all the magnetic fields of the Earth and whatever could potentially have an effect. You will, for example, never be able to screen gravity. Um, these effects are so small that they'll never make any effect that is going to perturb the kind of physics that you want to test with this atom. But there are physical effects that are in, impossible to get rid of. And uh, more generally, it's also the interaction with the um, detector itself. Now, if you want to measure an effect um, in a quantum mechanical system, you have to actually interact with the system itself. You have to interact with the atom in that case, right? So that'll perturb it as well. So, um, uh, I, but, but coming back to your point about theories, I don't think there is, or I'm, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a, as a perfect all-explaining theory. I think one lesson of physics of the last um, 100 years at least is that whenever we find a new layer, it is just that. It is another layer of um, reality. It is, it is precise up to a certain um, uh, energy, which we can test it, and then we can't really say whether it is um, exact or not. And uh, more often than not, theories get replaced by something more precise, which doesn't make them wrong at all. It just uh, tells you that the realm of, um, of uh, apply applicability of that theory is not infinite. You can't go to infinitely short distances or infinitely high energies and use uh, even general relativity. It will break down eventually. Mm -hmm. So um, and it's not clear to me that there's any theory that uh, has this property, at least in the paradigm of effective field theories. Um, this is one of the lessons we have learned, that basically you go from shell to shell and learn a little bit more, a little bit more, and the theory is a little bit more precise, but they can always think of situations where it's going to eventually break down. So I'm showing the paper, uh, the <clears throat> the archive reference, and I, and I put that in the show notes uh, down below as well. So you start off with a preamble about the uh, motivation for this, the actual reference. So the paper is over 100 years old. It published in 1922. Uh, with the title that you gave it. It's actually Gerlach and Stern, which I didn't know that. Um, but at any rate, um, we know it as a Stern-Gerlach. Um, so it talks about the you know, space quantization. So let's let's be clear. When you talk about, when we talk about space quantization, these scientists are not talking about uh, something general relativistically. They're not talking about uh, quantization of, you know, at the Planck length or something like that. They're not saying space is quantized, correct? What are they saying? No. 
Yeah, that is an unfortunate name. It is the name that was given to um, to the um, and the, the literal translation would probably better be directional quantization. That's more close to the German word. They just kept in line with what people used back then that wrote English literature. So when I, when we did the translation, I should also mention Philip Helbig. He's a cosmologist who um, helped me quite a bit with translating the paper. Um, uh, being a native English speaker, so we we uh, did this together. Um, it's a longer story why he is not the archive version. He will be on the journal version though. And um, the the um, what is meant by this is that there is a directional effect in quantization, so that basically the angular momentum is quantized, leading to this effect. It's something that was implicitly clear before, like there was indirect um, proof of that, even though people weren't actually convinced that this effect would be there. It's the first direct um, proof of that this existed. It is a really, um, it is a pioneering experiment if you think about it. There's the first vacuum to that degree. It is the first molecular beam that they had to that degree. When the experiment was built, Bohr himself said that he didn't believe it might work. <laughs> so um, there's another famous quote um, uh, um, that I double check just for this podcast. <laughs> it's uh, Gerla who answered uh, answered to Bohr that no experiment is so dumb that it shouldn't be tried when he was uh, when he was mentioning that he was unsure whether it might work. Um, so so the, it is really, really difficult experiment back then. And it took them a while to get it to work, but eventually it worked out. And um, uh, with regards to the space quantization, the, the effect is different from all that had been seen before because all quantization effects that you had before, like the Balmer series, for example, they showed that there is a quantization if you excite an atom. So an excited atom will um, show you these lines or an excited atom in the magnetic field has so can, can give rise to the Zeeman effect. But this experiment showed that the ground state of an atom, there was no excitement at all, still has this quantization property, still confirmed um, quantum mechanics. And that is why it has this, had this fundamental impact um, back then. Mm -hmm. So I'm showing figure one from the paper, <clears throat> which uh, demonstrates the source and the beam. Yeah, that's true. I didn't realize uh, that it was the first kind of molecular beam experiment, which would later lead to things like uh, nuclear magnetic resonance and the work of Robbie and, and, and other, you know, tremendous uh, contributions to our knowledge. Uh, and as well as, you know, really making an impact. It's rare that an experiment has an impact both experimentally, uh, technologically, and also philosophically. And I think the, the strange thing is uh, about this is that it really highlights the, the notion of spin, doesn't it, Martin? So um, what do we mean by spin? What, how do you think about spin? There, there's a book by Tamanga called What is Spin? I read it. Uh, didn't really come away with a much better uh, appreciation of how to visualize it. Is it impossible to visualize because we're these macroscopic creatures? How do you visualize as a as a as one of the most respected theorists of your generation? How do you visualize in a working sense? What is spinning? What does it mean? And just restrict ourselves to the electron for now. So when I try to visualize it, I can't do better than you or anyone else, I think. You just think in terms of uh, what we know from the microscopic world. So when I think in my mind about a spinning electron, I literally think of that. It is like a little, um, a little point like sphere, a tiny sphere that spins around its axis. That is not actually what's going on, as we know from, from the mathematical description, but um, it interacts with everything around it as if this were true. 
So the spin of an electron combines with angular momentum as macroscopic angular momentum would, with the only difference that it is quantized. But that's also true for angular momentum itself. Like every, every system that has angular momentum also has quantized angular momentum. Just have to probe it um, carefully enough. And once you have enough um, uh, spinning or, or rotating um, objects, then you get this macroscopic situation where you actually don't see the quantization property. But what concerns the, the my imagination, I don't think I can do better than anyone else uh, on that regard. <laughs> it is fundamentally different, though, because it is, in a way, it is closer to mass than to angular momentum, because spin is a is um, is a fundamental property that is independent of the um, inertial frame in which you look at it. So whether you look at a system spinning or someone moving looks at the system spinning, the spin of an object is um, invariant. It's a consequence of the um, fundamental symmetry group of space-time. So it is a there's a, um, a quantum number that is not related to some internal symmetry, that electric charge, for example. It is related to the same symmetry that gives rise to um, boosts and to um, uh, to mass as the other um, fundamental quantity that is invariant between um, inertia frames. So um, uh, that is, I think, a bit of a deeper insight that you get if you look at the fundamental theory that gives rise to spin. But if I try to imagine what a spinning electron is, I don't think there is a way to improve or haven't seen yet a better description. <laughs> so I'm showing on the screen now that uh, figure two and three, which show the uh, behavior of the um, of the uh, impact on an emulsion. Uh, so talk about these two different diagrams. I always thought the the um, one on the right, which is um, uh, the scale, the ruler's inverted, or it's uh, flipped uh, left to right and upside down. Uh, but it always looked kind of like somebody's mouth, like you know, with a little thing underneath the nose. Uh, what what is this uh, depicting, and why why is this uh, so so indicative of the fact that these have spins and not some other quantum phenomenon? So in the in the left picture, what you see is what you would expect classically. You have a line, and uh, the line would broaden if you funnel different um, uh, atoms with different aligned angular momentum through the magnetic field, because the angular momentum would, in this picture, spread from left to right. On the right-hand side is what they actually observed um, uh, with where the magnetic field turned on. Um, so, so if the if the um, classical theory would have been right, then you would have seen the left picture, which is taken without the magnetic field, and once you turn it on, the line would have broadened, would have spread out a little bit. But what happened instead is the line split into two lines. And that is exactly the effect that uh, the quantum theory predicted. Um, in fact, there were two competing. So I mentioned before, Sommerfeld um, at the time was convinced that there would be three lines. There would be a line for um, uh, uh, perpendicular to the magnetic field and a line um, aligned and anti-aligned with the magnetic field. So he was, um, he was thinking there might be three lines showing up, but Bohr had some argument that uh, the central line is unstable and should be only two. These, these predictions back then, I should add, are not what takes place here in the end. In the end, it is the spin of the electron that has only two possible values that spreads the line. But um, uh, this is what happens. The, the electron um, can only project to two possible spin values, spin up or spin down, with respect to the magnetic field. And so it ends up either on the left or on the right of this picture. And why do we get that is these... what gives rise to this? Why do we get the the closure of the lips on the you know on the sides? Why don't we just get two parallel lines, Martin? If there's two spins, 
Oh, I think because the, the magnetic field is not, there's an inhomogeneous magnetic field that is not perfect, yeah. but I, I'm, uh, I'm not an experimentalist, so I can't give you the details about that. I think that the, <laughs> that the electrons that were not funneled centrally through that field were not um, feeding the, uh, its full effect, so they weren't really deflected as much. And I believe it's true if the apparatus was physically larger, the separation would be greater. In other words, it's sort of the product of the length traversed times the inhomogeneous. Now, it has to be an inhomogeneous magnetic field. Why don't we explain why that is the case? Why can't it just be two refrigerator magnets uh, you know, creating a north and a south pole? Why does it have to be this strange inhomogeneous magnetic field uh, shown, generated by this odd-looking pole-type uh, behavior? So if you had a homogeneous magnetic field, meaning a field where the field lines are all parallel, for example, in that magnetic field, the spins might still um, uh, project to that field lines. So there's a magnetic moment. The spin of the atom has uh, a, a results in a magnetic moment because it is um, uh, because it feels the magnetic field, and then it might still project to these lines. It will still align the atoms, but there is no force in a uh, homogeneous magnetic field that would actually make them split to the left and to the right. So they might they might still travel through it, but they will not be split. That is why it was necessary to have this inhomogeneous magnetic field. And I want to um, re-emphasize, and that is actually the accomplishment of Gerlach out of the two. Mm. Um, he actually made this experiment, uh, the one that told Bohr that uh, he, they should try it even if he thinks it's impossible, basically. Um, he, he made it work. So Stern had the idea, and he um, wrote a paper previously where he, uh, that is translated into English, you should have a look, it's also on three pages or something, where he is um, uh, very unhappy about Bohr's proposal and he says, I'm going to prove that wrong, basically. We have to build this experiment. But only when Gerlach arrived in Frankfurt, um, he made it work. So um, it is technically really, really difficult. Back then it is an incredible experiment that they made work and uh, that, that, that inhomogeneous magnetic field is part of what made it hard. And why did they have to use silver? Why did they choose to use silver and not some other atom? So um, silver, well, we know now that silver has a single electron that is responsible um, for its spin. I don't think, because they weren't aware of that back then, I don't think this is the motivation of why they used silver in the first place. They could have used other atoms as well. I think there's, um, there's an experimental consideration there that you have to have it available. You have to be able to um, uh, turn it into a, um, into a gas. You have to be able to handle it safely. So I think these were the considerations, but I might be wrong. I don't know mm -hmm. exactly what the, what motivated them to use server specifically. It could, but, it could uh, be because silver is the reason we need two lines. Mm -hmm. I'll say that again, that it's silver, it results in two lines. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think part of the reason might've been that, you know, photographic emulsions were using silver and, you know, halides and stuff like that. So it was probably convenient to use silver for the exposure, perhaps that was one of the reasons. Um, now, this experiment then takes on kind of a, a life of its own, right? Uh, so they they go on to uh, get some some great fame, and uh, I love I love to read acknowledgments. First of all, I love a short paper. I mean, as much as anybody, this would have been fun to do. Um, I, I like to, uh, uh, to to look at the um, the foundation. Let's see, it says the electromagnet necessary with funds from the foundation of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute to the director, Mr. A. Einstein. Is that first name Albert? Yes, of course it is. So, so Stern was Albert Einstein's first assistant long before he moved to Zurich. He, he knew him very well and he moved with yeah, him to yeah. Zurich. And then when Einstein went to Berlin, Stern mm -hmm. moved uh, to Frankfurt where he started working with Gerlach. And um, this was just after the war. 
So money was really hard to get by. And there was actually um, heavy inflation setting on, mm-hmm. um, much worse than today, um, <laughs> even though we like to complain, but that was a different time. So uh, they didn't have the funds for this experiment, really. And to keep it going, they had to write letters. They had to ask for funding. And Einstein um, was asked um, in a letter for 8,000 Reichsmark, and he gave them 10,000. So he was really in support of this experiment. Um, uh, when I say he gave, obviously he supported them in getting it. It was not his money, but as the director um, in Berlin, he was able to um, make that work. And that's not the only money they received. They, Bohr wrote letters for them too, um, after he saw uh, that uh, Gela somehow was in a position to make that work. And um, I don't know how this worked precisely, but I think he, um, he knew someone in New York and um, Goldman from Goldman Sachs fame. Um, oh, really? He, he had family in Frankfurt and he funded this experiment as well with several hundred dollars, which was a lot back then. Wow. So um, they, they, they navigated that with um, a lot of external money that they had to bring in, not unlike today when that's, we do our experiments. So, so often, that's often right. people think, oh, well, back then, back then they had these cheap little experiments that were easy for them to build. And it was just a matter of a few hundred bucks or whatever to make that work. But it was a terrible, um, uh, terribly hard to get the funding for these experiments as well. That hasn't changed as much, even though the uh, digits might have changed. And this was uh, a a busy time for Einstein because, you know, when they're doing the experiment, that was was around the time he had, well, he won the 1921 Nobel Prize, but it wasn't given to him until the following year uh, for reasons I don't quite understand. Maybe maybe you do. Um, But... um, but this is a quite a busy time, and I, I like that they're you know really cooperating with the uh, with the with, with teams at different institutions, and it's and it's quite uh, of course in service of of the truth, which is this, which is this you know kind of bizarre notion that the electron may have this you know not only hidden but philosophically almost troubling type of behavior. And what's what's kind of delightful to me is that later on these types of phenomena, the spin of the electron and other things would go on to make Einstein rather nervous about the underpinnings of quantum mechanics. So uh, maybe talk about the influence of this paper and the notion of, of spin being a really honest-to-goodness intrinsic property of the electron or any quantum system. What did this do uh, for, for philosophy, in particular to Einstein, perhaps? So, um, well, there was... There was there's a lot that happened following up the experiment. There was an immediate impact. Einstein and Ehrenfest wrote a paper within weeks um, on this particular experiment. Um, it was clear that they showed something that um, was such a uh, such an important proof of uh, quantum mechanics that the theory wasn't worked out back then, one should say. So this was in a time where, um, uh, as, as we mentioned, the Bohr model was basically what people went off on. So they, they didn't have the full quantum mechanics that were still in its... Uh, very early years. So they, they didn't have that. They just showed basically that the current best theory of nature, um, uh, classical mechanics up to that point, apart from the early signs of uh, quantum mechanics, didn't quite work again. So the, um, And they showed that this is the case if you have ground state um, atoms as well, not just some excited states or um, photoelectric effect or something like this. It really um, was a fundamental um, property of nature. And um, Einstein and Ehrenfest wrote this paper basically double-checking this. They wrote a paper where they checked whether there could be any way the classical effect might lead to this picture. Mm-hmm. It was uh, people were really concerned. So Stern 
who was opposed to the Bohr model and um, in general had a big problem with uh, um, with these quantum mechanical effects. So he didn't expect it at all. He he didn't believe it. Still, for for a long time, he he struggled um, with the notion that this might be fundamental. And uh, Einstein Ehrenfest wrote a paper, and uh, I think one of the points they made is that there are some classical effects. So there's a Lambo frequency. There is a way that you might imagine they can somehow align in an atomic field and. They try to build a model that this works and Einstein found it would take a hundred years for this classical effect to make this uh, final picture work out. So it was a, was a time of great confusion where, um, where this experiment just basically um, put a nail in the coffin of, uh, of classical mechanics. It was clear there's no way this could be described by anything else as by a new theory that was, um, that was about to appear. And um, uh, yeah, eventually... Um, the the, um, yeah, the the theory was worked out by Heisenberg and Schrödinger and later on there was um, there was a lot of work um, going into this. Stern actually, um, well, yeah, I don't know whether you want to go there right now, but um, um, because you mentioned the Nobel Prize, so Einstein proposed a Nobel Prize for the two. I think the year after this experiment as well. So mm -hmm. he was really um, uh, in favor of that. It took much longer for Stern to get it. He got it in '44, I think. Um, Gerlach never got it. Hmm. Um, that that goes because Gerlach. So so Stern was a, was a Jew. He had to leave Germany uh, yeah. ten years later. I think he went to Pittsburgh after that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just after he made another important discovery, he measured later that the neutron, the proton, have an anomalous magnetic moment, meaning they are not fundamental. So looking back, this discovery by him and others was uh, probably as important almost as the Stern-Gerlach experiment. And Gerlach was, uh, um, he was not a fan of the Nazis. He never joined their party, but uh, he eventually was involved with the German version of the Manhattan Project. So he was working on um, an atomic board. I don't really, I'm not an historian. I should basically put this. In <laughs> that never stops physicists commenting on history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so he's... Uh, uh, so he was involved with that, and that's uh, part of the reason why, when in '43 or '44 the Nobel Prize went to Stern, it probably did went it go to Stern only. He was proposed many, many times for the for the Nobel Prize, um, but Gerlach later on, I should say, was also very much involved in um, uh, anti-nuclear uh, um, uh, movement in Germany. So he he didn't like uh, um, the consequences many physicists did um, later on. So he he did not. Uh, receive a prize on that, that price for his work right <laughs> um, uh, eventually so but you want to go to something else i think you want to go to the implications of quantum mechanics yes especially the the i'll say it say it in german please the say spooky action at a distance even though sabina will correct us both that einstein never said that or he didn't mean that or we don't know because we're idiots um martin what what did first say it i can't resist to have it would be like <laughs> me having falcon uh, the, Falco on and not asking him to sing Rock Me Amadeus or, or whatever. Anyway, how do you the, say it and the, what does it mean? Uh, it's it's called Spukhafte Fernwirkung. Um, it's spooky, spooky action and distance, actually a pretty good translation of that, I would say. Um, and uh, um, what is meant by this is um, that um, in, in quantum mechanics, you have two different aspects. You have the um, uh, time, the, the wave function that describes an object basically before you measure it. And you have the measurement process. And that process, going from the description of the evolution of the wave function to the actual measurement, is not well described within quantum mechanics. There is no real recipe for what happens there. So people call it the collapse of the wave function. 
um, uh, there, there are several interpretations of this, but it is a non-local effect that Einstein baptized as a spooky action at a distance. And it becomes most um, obvious when you think about entangled systems, entangled systems by which you can uh, take a, um, a wave function that not describes a single particle, but it describes more than one particle, that then obviously you can take um, apart, you can move them in different rooms, for example, and perform a measurement on one object that gives you information immediately about the other object, which then within quantum mechanics, it, it's completely rational to expect that because they're described by a single wave function, but for us looks very spooky. So um, uh, um, Einstein didn't mean specifically that. He made a more general argument that this non-locality is spooky to him. There's a spooky action at a distance, but it is often mentioned in the context of entangled states. Mm -hmm. And when we talk nowadays about the Stern-Gerlach experiment, it's, um, it's often you know, kind of presented as a way to not measure properties of quantum systems, but to prepare quantum systems. So can you speak about some of the strange things that happen when you have a series of black boxes you know, filled with Stern-Gerlach apparatus? Um, you can do all sorts of things. You can prepare things and spin up states and then, um, and then send them through a, uh, another Stern-Gerlach experiment. So the output of this will be two beams, right? One will be spin up, one will be spin down, the two different lips uh, of, the, of the pattern that I showed earlier. And then you can kind of block one of the lips off or one of the, uh, the beams out. And then you're left with a pure spin up or spin down, just depending on your coordinate system, uh, beam. And then you can put that through subsequent Stern-Gerlach experiments at different angles. And then all sorts of strange things happen. You want to describe some of the phenomena that you can obtain with these SG experiments? Yeah, so what you um, what you would think is that um, when you've prepared a beam in a certain state, and, and I should mention that um, when I said the, that these were the first real molecular beams, they had molecular beams before. It's the first polarized um, beam mm -hmm. of, uh, of atoms, right? So we, yeah. they, they, tr they played around with this quite a couple of years before they did the actual Stern-Gerlach experiment. But you would think if you have prepared a state in a certain um, situation, like for example, a spin up in a Stern-Gerlach experiment, there would be in that spin state but uh, if you now have a subsequent Stern-Gerlach so you have one inhomogeneous field say that has the um, uh, which is aligned up down and you have one that is aligned left right and now you filter out the, um, the S up component for example and you funnel it to another to the second um, uh, experiment it will split again you will see the split now in the in the other direction so there's uh, th these kind of experiments were actually also directly proposed by Einstein to make sure that this is um, this is what we really see. There's really quantum mechanics. Um, so they they, um, they he immediately started writing letters and said, "Let's do two, let's do three. So he was he was very much involved with the <laughs> development of uh, of, uh, um, of the cross checks of the theory. And it's good to do that because you know this is something that could have been wrong. The notion of of spin could have been falsified uh, or could have been that we truly have a classical universe, I think that would have made other problems come about. But it, it's always sort of reminded me of, of uh, Newton's uh, experiments with prisms and color theory and so forth. So, you know, when you send a beam of white light through a prism, uh, it'll separate out famously into a rainbow-like uh, spectrum. And uh, Newton realized that you could actually experimentally block, you know, say the, the green color of a, of a beam that was coming out of this prism, say, and then combine it in another prism and you wouldn't get white light out. And so he realized that it was kind of synthesis and there was this duality associated with it. 
Um, I wonder if there are experiments in your mind nowadays. What is sort of the um, the the analog of of these types of measurements? We we hear so much about new forces, new fields, and, and so forth really being manifest. Is there anything in your mind as a theorist that is as exciting or potentially as revolutionary, both to physics and to philosophy, teleology, etc., as the Stern-Gerlach experiment? So the thing is, we don't know, right? We don't, uh, um, we don't know. We have no clear prescription of what experiment precisely will bring this about. Um, that we, are, we are in a slightly different situation back then. We, we don't um, look for a theory. We have a theory, in fundamental physics at least, and we have one in cosmology as well. Um, the both don't like each other, um, Einstein's general relativity and the standard model of particle physics. Um, and we have some ideas how to combine them, but um, the fundamental problem with testing these theories, like string theory, for example, um, has nothing to do with string theory directly. It has only to do with the fact that gravity is so insanely weak that um, it's completely um, incredible the, 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 to, to believe that we can build machines that can test um, the energies that would be necessary to see, for example, a quantum effect in, uh, in gravity. So um, uh, that is the problem with that. But um, there's, uh, that, that's not a reason to not test whether something is out there. And the most successful version of that, for example, is um, what we have seen through um, gravitational waves in the last couple of years. Um, so if you want to, uh, me to give an example right now, I would think what is exciting um, are atomic interference experiments, for example, if, if you ask exciting and related to Stern-Gerlach. So atomic waves can interfere in the same way as the um, interferometer of lasers work in, uh, in LIGO, for example. And um, you can split atomic waves and you can recombine them and the interference shows you whatever interacted on the way with the atoms. And these experiments have become incredibly, incredibly precise in the last couple of years. And not only that, um, people have figured out in the, in the um, US there's an experiment at, uh, at Fermilab, Magis, that tries to achieve this. In the UK we have iron, there's an experiment in France as well. They have achieved a separation of these um, states before interference over very large distances. So you can move the, you can split the atomic wave like you can split a laser beam. You can move them far apart, and then you can recombine them and look at the interference pattern. And these are so incredibly precise these machines that eventually they will be able to pick up uh, gravitational waves themselves, and they will test a completely different spectrum than uh, the gravitational waves that are tested at LIGO or ELISA or any other experiment can test, which will be almost like a like a telescope. It will be a telescope for gravitational waves and a uh, on a different line with, and we should do all these experiments. They are not; they are complementary to each other. They they um, achieve an um, an unheard sensitivity um, in their um, in their particular uh, range of wavelength, and uh, we don't know what they will discover, but there will be surprises. So LIGO already finds that there are black hole mergers where we don't really thought they were, and uh, they tell us something about how black holes are distributed. That has consequences that will teach us about the theory that is responsible for the distribution of black holes which are formed in the um, in the uh, during the history of the universe so we, who knows what we will discover there so these these are extremely exciting and on the particle physics front as well so um, we, whatever the next collider is going to be it will have the main goal to to um, learn about the Higgs boson which is just discovered it's just so by the time Stern and Gerlach made their experiment work the Balmer series was known for much longer than we know about the Higgs boson. Um, mm. It probably is not going to be true once we have a new collider to test it, <laughs> given that it takes a long time uh, to build these things uh, today. And we probably need more money than uh, Einstein was happy to give Cern Gerlach for that too. <laughs> yeah. But um, we, we really should make that 
we, we really should make that point clear. We have only seen that the Higgs boson is there. We have measured its most immediate properties. We know its mass, we know its charge, we know its spin. Um, but the Higgs particle is, um, is only the harbinger of a, of a mechanism that gives mass to all particles that is predicted by the standard model. And the only way to really understand whether this is true in nature is to measure the potential of the Higgs boson, to figure out whether it's actually the particle that's responsible for that, um, as described by the standard model, or whether it's different. And because it is the only spin zero particle, it has unique theoretical possibilities to interact with other particles we haven't seen yet. So there's something called the Higgs portal, which um, only is only possible for a spin zero boson. We only have ever seen one of them, um, which is the Higgs. So we really want to test these things as well as we can and see what they will um, they will tell us. We're going to take questions from the audience. Just a reminder, um, anybody who uh, subscribes to my Twitter or YouTube account should certainly follow Martin. I've linked his, his Twitter uh, account in the... Uh, in the show notes, or if I didn't, I will. And uh, reminder that I do take questions on Twitter and on Instagram and on YouTube, where we have recently surpassed 100,000 followers. And I want to thank everybody out there and uh, all my guests. And Martin's my first, you know, new guest in the in the new era of a uh, hundred thousand or more uh, coming up on 102,000. Yeah. Uh, so we have great guests coming up uh, on the podcast. If I can get the budget from YouTube, you know, maybe they'll give me some some budget to get a non autofocusing camera. Uh, but we have Mark Kamikowski, uh, who I'm sure Martin knows very well. Uh, he's a guest coming up uh, this weekend. On the podcast, we talk about tensions in cosmology. And, uh, and, and so the kind of way forward that I always like to do is to get questions from the audience, because my guests are on unequivocally well suited to answering questions. And so there are a bunch of questions, you know, kind of percolating, but I'm going to take the opportunity to just harken back to what you just said about the Higgs boson as the only spin zero particle known to physics or cosmology. Does that give you more confidence in the existence of inflation and the multiverse perhaps, or, or uh, should, does it have any real impact on the, on the physics of the extremely early universe? So I'm, I'm not a cosmologist, so I'm can't. No, I know that. Uh, no, 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 I know that. Directly. As a physicist, yeah. yeah. If you were, you know, right. to speculate, would you, would you say it gives you more credence in the theory of inflation or does it not have a bearing? It can't give less, right? I mean, but could it give you, could it right. give you more hope that inflation is actually a correct description of the extremely early universe? Um, I don't think it does give you direct a direct link. I think there are models that um, where the Higgs itself is the inflaton. So whether the Higgs might be self-responsible for inflation or linked to that mechanism, but there are, there are some models in a, in, a, in a landscape of models that could be responsible for that. And I don't see why they are particularly motivated. Uh, I think they have their problems. You would really mm -hmm. need to ask a cosmologist um, for that. Yeah. Um, my opinion on the multiverse is that it basically um, the, the multiverse is a consequence that can't be tested. If cosmology is right, if certain class of, of inflation models is true, um, the one that seems to be favored by the data at the moment, then the multiverse is a, is a prediction of these models, but nothing we can directly test. And I think this really um, has, has, uh, um, has people fantasizing about this and um, uh, calling physicists crazy for coming up with a theory like this. But it should be emphasized that all theories that we have have untestable consequences. They're not directly accessible to us. 
like Newton's gravitational theory tells us that there is going to be a stone and if you drop it on a, a planet in Andromeda, it's going to fall down. But there's no way for us to go there and check. We can't really uh, take an apple there and uh, repeat his experiment on Earth, <laughs> um, even though we definitely assume that it is true as well. And the multiverse is, um, is similar. It's not something we can test. It is not scientific in that sense. But it is a consequence of a theory that can be tested otherwise. And we should perform these tests. And the fact that we know that um, these kind of theories predict something like the multiverse should, should get people into the business of thinking about whether it can be tested. If it can never be tested, it's not something we could waste our time with. If someone mm -hmm. has a brilliant idea um, of how maybe there is a test that nobody has thought of yet, then um, we should take into account because that could tell us whether these theories are right or not. Very good. Okay, first question for Martin uh, comes from a person by the name of Cool Cat. Uh, although he has an ape as his avatar, she has an ape as her avatar. Brian Martin, is spin a matter of observational orientation? That is, could you look at a spin up particle and it becomes a de facto spin down? Adding, not a physicist, but an enthusiastic amateur hungry for more insight. So is it just a matter of like turn your head and now it becomes spin down or is there something intrinsically different about a spin up for spin down particle? So what you call spin up and spin down, it actually depends on the way you look at it. You can define your axis and you can define the spin with respect to that. The important bit is that you have these two different orientations for an electron. So um, if you once you measure an electron, which you, you can use a magnetic field, for example, then what you call up and down, you will do with respect to that magnetic field. But um, that, that's, the, uh, that's the underlying principle. So spin up and spin down are two distinct properties but what whether if you don't decide to do the experiment and call spin up spin down and i call spin down spin up it's going to have the same physics in the end <laughs> all right cool cat is now subscribed to your twitter following uh mass judge join the join the crowd um so another person gibson lp says uh chat gpt will render you uh uh basically uh, unnecessary and superfluous, Martin. How do you th feel about that? Uh, is chat GPT or successor, call it call it chat GPT, or uh, what, what is it called now? Chat GPT or GPT-4 right now, they just released this week. Uh, imagine GPT-40. Is there going to be an artificial bower uh, or is your job security safe, at least for now? Uh, so for now, it definitely is. I try to ask uh, ChatGTP some questions. It, it gets many of them wrong. But I, I definitely believe that it's going to get better. And I think it will have its place in uh, helping to understand and develop theories. I know that uh, uh, Martin Ries has this um, this idea that artificial intelligence will just run away and will have no way in, uh, in catching up. But uh, I'm not concerned at the moment. I would need to see uh, something way more impressive. Um, even though I think ChatGTP is very impressive, I, I use it. If mm -hmm. I need to write a, a very boring text for a grant application, I let ChatGTP improve my English and uh, fill in some words I can't come <laughs> up with um, to, to make it sound a little bit better. But um, it, in terms of like developing new physics, um, it, it's not very helpful. And even if it could, it would definitely not be able to um, uh, replace uh, the experimentalists, which are the which do the real physics. Right, so if you have yeah, an artificial intelligence that builds us a new collider, you can get back to me. I'm happy to uh, <laughs> to retire then. If you can, uh, if you can write a little letter like Einstein did to my funding agencies here in the U.S., I'd appreciate it. Um, well, one thing you could use it for, you know, is kind of uh, you're you know generating tweet ideas, and you have this prolific ability to connect 
very abstract, very advanced, you know, concepts uh, for millions of people to see. I mean, just this weekend, you had one about general relativity in two dimensions. And what I love about you and what you do is you never dumb it down. You never make it like super simple. You, you include all the notation. And I think that's inspiring, Martin, because people see that and it, it may, you know, induce a young, you know, Martin or Brian Keating uh, to to uh, go out and become interested in uh, in the game that is particle physics and experimental cosmology and theoretical physics and theoretical cosmology. Um, so I want to talk about uh, some of the what I call the academic media hype and complex, which is kind of like the military industrial complex, which is we, we have these you know discoveries and they'll be, oh, there's new physics found. And, and just yesterday or two days ago, you, you resulted a, something, you know, I talked about something that could have been a departure from the standard model. How serious should people, lay audience people that may be listening and wondering, um, how seriously should they take it when they hear a physicist? What, what should they do? Give us a rubric. When you hear new force of nature discovered or, you know, cosmologist, you know, the Big Bang is in violent disagreement with these observations. What should a lay person do when they hear such a claim? So, so um, what I would say is that, um, so the first thing that everyone should do is read beyond the headline. If you ever have written an article or have contributed to something, you will know that the headlines of these articles are not even set by the people that write the articles themselves. They are set by the um, journal um, and they are set such that they attract as many clicks as possible. They're not set to have the most realistic um, uh, representation of whatever is described by the physics that has been discovered. And then I would pay attention to the general. So when you read something in a journal online, say, for example, then um, pay attention to what else do they write? If every other article they write tells you the standard model is broken and the Big Bang is wrong and uh, there has been a wormhole and ship and what else, right? If every article sounds like that, or every article tells you that um, physics is is, uh, is finished and we have found the solution to everything, um, or not, right? If if it's a if it's an extreme hyped um, uh, kind of a sense that you, that you get from the general articles there, then don't don't read these kind of journals. If you find a more balanced view, then uh, you're at the right place. And I think, uh, to my surprise, kind of because I didn't plan that really, I um, uh, I didn't start that that way when I started twittering about these things. Um, uh, the people that read it were quite interested, and I kept going. But I didn't anticipate that so many people would stay interested in these t- kind of technical topics from time to time. Uh, to my surprise, if you if you find uh, the right people on Twitter, this is a really good place to get comments on these articles so mm-hmm. so people that are on twitter are more likely um, in my opinion um, if they are experts on a topic to tell you whether something you read is wrong or whether it is just completely hyped up for no reason so right. this is also good to just get a second and a third opinion if you think you found something that uh, sounds believable to you but maybe quite a little bit too good or a little bit too negative too good to be true okay uh rupaul uh chana asked, um, do you think that we should get funding to train large language models on physics conversations, classes, derivations to solve specific problems, not just write proposals? Should it should it be a, um, it be a topic so, that can be funded, in other words? Not not just, I definitely think it should, let me just say my bit, because I love to talk, uh, well, I love to talk about myself, Martin, if you haven't noticed, um, on my favorite subject. But uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I do think it has a utility for, um, uh, for discovering 
new ways of pedagogical impact. For example, we could take, I, I translated, I didn't translate, I took, I was granted the permission from the publisher, which is the University of California, uh, to take Galileo's dialogue and convert it to an audiobook. And it uh, is the first audiobook ever made by Galileo. And we had people like Frank Wilczek and Carlo Rovelli and Jim Gates and Fabiola Giannotti and my friend Lucio Picciarillo. And we recorded it. And I was thinking, this about a million words. And Galileo's amazing writer. Why don't I just dump it into some chatbot, and and then I can go away and we can teach you know f you know freshman mechanics uh, by from Galileo, not for Brian Keating. Even though I think I'm a great teacher, I can't compare with the maestro. So I definitely I'm just assuming we're going to use it for teaching and improving the pedagogical method that you and I employ, which is no different than what Galileo did 400 years ago. And it's even no different than what they did in the University of Bologna in the year 1089 when the first university came about. Some guy uh, or gal you know, scratching with a piece of rock on another piece of rock, and, and there are some students in, in the audience. Except back then, Martin, uh, the students could go on strike. So if they didn't like us, they would go on strike. We wouldn't get paid. So, uh, so thankfully, that barbaric, you know, inhumane process has, <laughs> has gone away. But I guarantee it's going to be. Now, I don't, I'm not as sanguine that it can be used to discover new laws of physics. And I always use this example, but, you know, stop me if you disagree. But, you know, do you know what Einstein called his happiest thought, Martin? His happiest thought? No, I don't know that. He said that an observer in free fall would experience no gravitational field. So I always ask the question, how could you train a computer to, uh, A, a visualize free fall, you know, do a Gedanken experiment, you know, a visualize free fall, a and B, how could you connote what it means to feel happy? And it seems to me that that was the most important thing to Einstein. He talked about something deeply hidden in magnetic fields and quantum mechanics, spooky action at a distance. These are all very human centric, visceral sensations. So maybe to expand upon RuPaul, do you think that beyond just taking conversations and language that an artificial intelligence could actually come up and create creatively? A new theory of physics. Um, I, so I think um, these these models and artificial intelligence in general. And again, I should appreciate that we're saying I'm not an expert in the topic. No, no. But Neither, I, that I, never I, prevents I me from expect, saying anything. <laughs> Don't right. Say anything. I, I fully expect that uh, uh, that AI will have a huge impact on all research fields. Right. We already see people that, are, um, for example, let them. Um, feed in a whole medical library and ask them for drugs that haven't been discovered and they just scramble together something that might uh, might have an application right so they they will have a huge impact I, i'd like to compare them with say um uh, computers in general before computers were around or calculators in the first place when a theoretical physicist want to work out a new model you had to sit down and any every single calculation had to be done by pen and paper and you had to look up values of logarithms in books that had been written by russians uh, a couple of decades ago or something right and then you have to double check some integral values and it was a really really difficult slow process and computers have revolutionized that using computer programs i can now write a program myself that has gives you a simulation for something um, i can immediately get this insight with uh, on my fingertips right it's, it's an incredible revolution and i will be similar it will be very similar to that i think it will uh, will be a new tool that uh, will improve the way we approach these problems enormously but one thing um, won't go away. I think it will only be re-emphasized by the advent of AI, and that is that what, what makes a real scientist a great scientist is to figure out the right question to ask. So um, this, this is already the case, right? Everyone who does research knows that. You yeah. can work um, on, on a certain topic forever, 
And then when you finish the research project, you figure out, oh, well, if I had phrased it that way, it would have been clear to me what is going on. I could have solved this problem much faster, right? right. So this, is, this has been true forever. Back when Einstein figured out special relativity with all the Gedanken experiments that you were talking about with the, with the train and the, when the, the elevator and whatever he was thinking of to, to uh, make these analogies and to figure out what, how the dynamics really work and why general relativity is uh, basically impossible to avoid if, if special relativity is true. Um, if he had asked, for example, um, um, uh, an, an AI, give me a theory that respects Lorentz symmetry, which was already realized in Maxwell's equations. If you, if you give me a theory of mechanics that respects that, and I doubt chat GTP would be able to do it without knowing it already, but uh, a future I might be able to do it, right? But to find that question, to, to narrow it down to that question that can be answered that way, that is really the achievement of a, of a, of a great scientist. And still also, I should remark um, more, more and more that this is only true for the theoretical considerations. I don't see AI replacing experimentalists. They might improve some methods, but as it is now, they don't see them building the next best experiment. Uh -huh. All right, let's talk about experiment then. Um, what will we, this is from Omni Bejesus which I consider for naming one of my kids, actually, Martin. I don't know if you knew that. Omni Bejesus asks, <laughs> what will we test at CERN in the coming years? And then how can we draw a line between the beginning and end of it all? And what will be around this line? Uh, and then the tree of... Okay, forget that. Let me just ask his first question. Um, <laughs> he should have stopped at one, or she should have stopped at one. Omni Bejesus, come on. Uh, what's uh, most exciting that's coming up that will be tested at CERN in the next coming years from your perspective? So there's a bunch of things. CERN will um, start the program of, of uh, or continue the program of figuring out what the Higgs really is. It will improve measuring the couplings of the Higgs. Um, with the discovery of the Higgs boson, we have so far only tested a handful of its interactions with the other quantum particles that we know of. And we want to see as many as we can because every single one of them is predicted by the standard model. And if even one of them is wrong, we know there's something else out there. But that is only one aspect of CERN. So um, uh, the Large Hadron Collider is a Hadron Collider. So it, it collides proton with protons. And you build such a machine when you don't know what you look for. If you already know what you want to test, you don't do this because it's really, really messy. You have a lot of backgrounds. It's really, really, really hard to um, uh, to, to get predictions tested at a, at a Hadron Collider. You could collide electrons or maybe we collide muons in the future and that would be a much much cleaner experiment but um, the big advantage is then that even though you might look for something in particular you have the potential to see anything and the new phase of the LHC the third run of the LHC will have an enormous statistics it's billions of billions of collisions so that means even if you have tiny tiny effects you can tickle them out of the data. And uh, that is, of course, important for the Higgs boson because it is really difficult to produce a Higgs boson. But more importantly, or equally importantly, I'd say, there's also um, mesons in the standard model, like B mesons that make from bottom quarks or kaons, for example, that have extremely rare decays. They're so rare that within these billions and billions of collisions that you have, um, and you produce billions of these mesons, you only have a handful of these decays. And some of them we haven't ever seen, and we will only now be able to see them. And these tests are really important. They are basically over-constraining what the standard model tells us. So every one of these tests could show us something that we didn't expect. And it might be counterintuitive, but the tests of these light particles that we perform at the Large Hadron Collider, we 
all physicists together, basically, um, they, they, they are sensitive to um, extremely high energy scales. Um, and this is a feature of quantum field theory. You can't have any kind of physics at any scale completely detached from the rest of the world. If you put enough energy in, or if you have enough statistics, you'll see these effects. So if we see an indirect effect of this kind, like a decay that happens more often or less often than the standard model predicts, that would not only tell us there's something we are missing, like the stern goddard experiment, right? There's something that what it is, is not perfectly clear, but it also would tell us at what energy scale this takes place. And these, these implications are incredibly important because they will guide the next um, collider machine, that it will not be a Hadron Collider necessarily, that if we have these hints, we will build a machine that looks specifically there what it is that we see that uh, deviates from the prediction. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, so John, um, uh, John Beal Nielsen asks the following question. You mentioned the measurement problem of quantum mechanics. What are your thoughts on that? Could new physics come from understanding this problem? It definitely could. I mean, there's, there is no, um, th th that is the big problem with, um, with new physics. So it's not a problem, it's a feature, if you will. Um, the, the, apart from certain uh, guidelines that we know need to be resolved, right? So for example, um, if you have a theory that is not consistent, then it can't be right. So you're missing something, you have to go after that, right? But if you have ticked all these boxes, like the standard model, if you include neutrino masses as well, is, is a type is a kind of that theory that apart from gravity, it really takes all these boxes. What guides us to finding new physics is impossible to predict. If we knew it, we would have found it already, right? Yeah. And um, the, the measurement problem is one feature um, where I don't think there's anyone who would claim that this has been uh, understood 100%. Mm -hmm. there's certainly, um, there are certainly questions. Um, I'm not a fan of, uh, of theories replacing quantum mechanics. Doesn't sound, nothing I've seen sounds really appealing to me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think their formulations of quantum mechanics make sense. It, it, they don't make sense to us as macroscopic uh, creatures in a way, but uh, they make sense intrinsically. I don't think there's a, there's a contradiction. Wow. And then one has to be really careful when you, when you talk about the measurement problem, I think, because the measurement problem within quantum mechanics um, is a bit difficult. I don't think this is the right framework. So um, people often say that you have like um, information exchanged or, or not really information, but you have an, a non-local property that happens basically um, that doesn't doesn't follow the speed of light, which it should if it was uh, in agreement with a special theory of relativity. But quantum mechanics is not a relativistic theory. Quantum mechanics is, um, is, an, is, a, is a theory that completely ignores special relativity. So in principle, within quantum mechanics, you could have something that moves faster than the speed of light. There is no um, velocity limit there, right? So right. really the framework to consider this question would be quantum field theory, which is the only consistent theory that combines uh, a quantum uh, framework with the special theory of relativity. And within quantum field theory, um, there are proven theorems that um, you can't have, um, you can't have any um, interaction space-like distances, or these are distances that would need to travel faster than the speed of light that uh, have any influence on each other. So mm -hmm. that within the framework of QFT is completely consistent. I don't see any unsolved question there. No, great. But I don't want to, don't want people to dis disengage from that because quantum field theory is not the final answer either. It is not in agreement with general relativity. So if you have a brilliant idea, mm -hmm. um, it might well be that you find uh, um, the next step forward there. Uh, so our super producer of the Into the Impossible podcast, uh, Mr. Stuart Volkow, 
Uh, it's just noting that Peter Diamandis is hosting a conference, Abundance 360, and they're all talking about AI and ChatGPT and how that's going to revolutionize. We already talked about that. This is just a chance for me to to broadcast the fact that Peter's coming on the podcast in a couple weeks, and I'll be on his podcast called uh, Moonshots and Moonbeams or something like that. Uh, a very, very uh, interesting and progressive podcast that I am excited to be going on. So thank you, Stuart. Uh, memes of Destruction. He, uh, another name I almost chose for one of my kids. Uh, Professor Einstein once said, I don't believe this is true. Uh, it sounds like something that Abraham Lincoln said. He said, uh, he claims that Einstein said that if he had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. I don't know if that's true, but uh, Lincoln said something like, if you have an hour to cut down a tree, spend 55 minutes sharpening the ax. Uh, but I'm going to use a memes of destruction's question as a way to ask about your style. How do you work? What's it like to be a graduate student in your group? And what kind of advice do you give to graduate students on the practice, the craft of being a physicist as they are apprenticing with you? So what kind of, what's your style? How do you work on problems? Um, so personally, I'm, so it, it very much depends on the problem I'm working on. There are some questions I'm working on where I have a pretty good idea on uh, what steps we have to take to get to a solution. Um, these are the problems that in the end are probably the least interesting problems because uh, if, I, if I know how to approach them, um, it's rather straightforward. And it is a good way um, uh, to solve problems of this kind um, if you have, for example, a master student or someone who has never done anything um, in physics because you, you can guide them. It, I always tell my PhD students um, um, and it's basically an underlying truth of research is that you don't know where you end up. But when you start a PhD, most likely, if you look back three, four years later, you won't even recognize what you initially set out to do. Um, that might be less true in experimental physics, where it's your, your bit of clearer picture what you want to build. But in theory, you basically try to nail down um, a question that you want to answer and then you get to work. Um, and uh, on your way to find an answer to that question, you often find that there might be much more interesting questions related to that. Mm. So um, uh, I recently um, read and, and uh, posted the article by uh, Steven Weinberg, who gave a recommendation to um, graduate students, which I can just fully commit to. I think this is completely right. You should start doing research. You should not waste too much time uh, um, learning the basics, at least if you are at the level where you can start a PhD start with a project it's the best thing you can do you will learn on the way um, and he also said you should um, go where the masses are so if you're if you're at that level you should not um, waste your time with something that is uh, too easy if it's too easy um, then it, it's not a it's not really a problem worth your time you should you should uh, go where it's a, where there's a difficult problem that many people don't seem to understand and uh, try whether try to make progress there um, and so so i think both these things are right and i um, and i communicate them usually to my students as well yeah. Very good. Yeah. So I have that tweet here from you in the name of the late, great Steven Weinberg. Let me see if I can get that on the screen here. Let's do that. Um, and then we're going to finish up. Yeah. Uh, Four Golden Lessons by the late Steven Weinberg. Short read for young and old. So follow, please, Martin on Twitter at Martin M. Bauer uh, on Twitter and you'll get this and many more viral tweets. He's got the knack for going viral, which is... Uh, elusive to to uh, many of us mortal, mere mortals. Um, so we're going to finish up. Um, I'll take one more question from the audience. 
here uh, and then um, and then we'll move on to the patented final four questions although it's getting super late there very appreciative we got to wrap it up you've got a young kid at home I don't want to keep you too long um, so I want to just ask one more question about the uh, something that's outside your field which is going to be the topic of my conversation with uh, Dr. Felix Flicker uh, who's coming on? Uh, I'm recording with him tomorrow. So leave your questions for Felix Flicker on Twitter or on YouTube uh, if you're interested in condensed matter. He's got some viral Royal Institution videos about magnetic monopoles, and he's the first you know theoretical condensed matter physicist that I've had on. And he and I will be talking about all sorts of things, including the recent claims of high temperature superconductivity and so forth. Um, so you mentioned in the beginning of this conversation that it was thought that this measurement by Stern and Gerlach would be impossible, that it wouldn't exist. And, and as you know, the name of this podcast is Into the Impossible. And I asked many people in the last couple of years what they thought was impossible and later turned out to be possible. And by the way, that comes from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who said uh, that the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to go beyond those limits into the impossible. So that's the name of the podcast, and it's kind of my credo here uh, on the project. Um, is there anything that you might have thought would be impossible when you started your your journey as a scientist, but with the benefit of hindsight being 2020, uh, you now have seen to be possible? Is there is there anything you thought might not be uh, might not be true or even possible to grapple with that has become maybe not, if not routine, some part of what we teach to students or otherwise inculcated in your value system as a physicist? So one thing that has happened is uh, the discovery of gravitational waves. Um, I might not have thought of that when I started my PhD because I wasn't in the field, but if you go back in history and look at um, what people thought in the 70s, 80s, 90s, every single step along the way of these kind of experiments, it seemed completely unrealistic to um, end up where we are. And that this is now basically its own field of astronomy. It's its own like multi-messenger version of um, astronomy besides neutrinos and photons. It's absolutely incredible to me. But let me also mention two things that aren't possible yet, or uh, that we don't have yet, but they are about to happen. Uh, they might happen the, in the future. And one of them is um, the um, um, is the um, muon collider. So we will have uh, potentially a muon collider in the US. There is a whole collaboration now building that wants to work on this. Muons are particles that actually de decay in a millionth of a second if they are addressed. They're really, really, really short-lived. And to cool them, then accelerate them such that they are long-lived enough with Einstein's time dilation, and then make them collide to do physics with them, Sounds absolutely incredible if you think about it. But there has been some progress, and there needs to be more, but eventually this might happen. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really hard to believe, but this might be possible. And another thing in another field of physics is, um, uh, is the entanglement and the measurement of macroscopic objects, like the quantum properties of macroscopic objects. And there are physicists that are working on um, entangling um, things that are as big as, um, as a virus, for example. Um, or things you can even almost see with your with your, your um, bare eye. This was completely unthinkable um, for for decades, and might even have implications for quantum gravity. So we might learn, for example, whether the gravitational how it interacts with um, the quantum properties of these objects. Mm. So this is um, these two things are absolutely incredible to me, and I, I really believe that they are about to happen, um, certainly within our lifetime, but probably earlier than that. Wow. So I can't resist because the name of my second book is Into the Impossible. Um, 
like the name of the podcast. And because the foreword was written uh, in combination with my good friend uh, James Altucher, but also by Barry Barish, uh, who is the winner of the co-winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize? And so Barry wrote the foreword, and he also thought this was impossible. Um, uh, but uh, but we went ahead and did it. They went ahead and did it, and they continue to do stuff like propose to build uh, laser interferometers in space. So just it's amazing how something can go from being you know purely even discarded. I mean Einstein didn't think we'd ever detect gravitational lensing, let alone gravitational waves. He did a little tiny calculation, uh, and he showed it to be, you know, a curiosity at best. And now we've detected it, and it won a Nobel Prize for for Barry and Ray Weiss, who have been guests, and Kip Thorne, who keeps he doesn't keep rejecting me. I, mean, I keep writing him, and he keeps saying he's too busy, but he never says go to hell. So hope springs eternal that I'll get the mercurial Kip Thorne as well as the remaining uh, only remaining member of the troika. Uh, last question, Martin. Uh, that I asked my guest, um, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who also said, uh, you know, the only way of determining limits of the possible is going to the impossible. He also said when a elderly but distinguished scientist says that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. But when he or she says something is impossible, they're very likely to be wrong. Uh, I'm not calling you elderly, but I'm calling you distinguished. I want to ask you, in that vein, what have you changed your mind about? What have you been wrong about, if anything? What I've been wrong about? That's a good question, because in my field of research, I've been wrong a lot. So <laughs> basically, um, I would say um, almost so when, when you think about physics beyond the standard model, for example, right? Um, you're, you're always working about you're always working on problems that are potentially discoverable. You're not necessarily set out. Some people do, obviously, but you're not necessarily set out to um, propose a new experiment that might be built in 500 years. That's not really your goal. You want to see well, what can we do now? What can we learn now? And there have been plenty of papers I've written where I thought that maybe this is around the corner. Maybe we can check this at the LHC, and it turned out not to be right. So um, um, I, I don't really. That I think one should distinguish between proposals like this, and, and actually, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong about those two. Um, and what what uh, scientists have as like their fundamental belief. This goes back to what we talked about the Stern-Goddard experiment as well. Um, so Stern did the experiment, um, believing that he would not see what he saw. Then he wouldn't have gotten the Nobel Prize for that experiment then, right? So he was he was completely convinced that he would uh, disprove that um, proposal. What you personal belief is in a, in, a, in a theory or in a proposal is, is really irrelevant um, to some degree. It, um, it's much more important whether it is scientifically um, solid um, proposal that you put forward. You can work on it and you can make these proposals and you can be convinced of them or not be convinced of them. You can hope they be right or not be right. That has no bearing at all mm -hmm. of whether nature follows uh, your instincts and shows whether they, they are true. So we, um, I'm happy to have a podcast to talk about the things that have been wrong. It would be much longer <laughs> than this one. <laughs> well, uh, Professor Martin Bauer, it's a delight to finally get to talk to you. I can't wait to meet you in person in June when I'll be in the UK. Uh, I'll let uh, the audience members know about that. People in the UK who wanted meteorites from me for so long, uh, I will bring a whole pocket full of space schmutz and I'll give a special chunk to my friend Martin. We meet in person. Martin, thank you so much. Uh, team uh, Into the Impossible, stick around the rest of this 
year uh, is shaping up to be just phenomenal. You're not going to believe some of the guests who are coming on and some of the opportunities I'm going to have uh, to go on other people's podcasts. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and it's really because of you guys, the, the audience and the great guests that I get like Martin. Um, and it's just, uh, it's really overwhelming to have over 102,000 people now uh, following us and, uh, and, and participating because I can't really do it without you guys. So when I post something on Twitter, I post something on YouTube, please, uh, the best thing you can do, first of all, give a thumbs up if you like this interview, write a comment if you like this interview. The algorithm is still governed by AI, so uh, that's one of the best ways to engage. Engage with Martin, engage with all my guests, ask them questions, and let them know what you thought of their appearance. And hopefully we'll use that to get a, a even more guests of the caliber that we had today. I can't uh, thank Martin enough for his time and wisdom. I look forward to many of these. As I said, maybe we'll do one in person in the UK. That would be super fun. Or we'll get you out here in San Diego. I'd love to host you here. Uh, and uh, we have some rainy weather lately, so it'll make you feel at home. <laughs> it will. Thank you very much, Brian. It was, uh, was an honor to be on. Congratulations to the 100,000. It's, uh, it's quite an achievement, I, I told you. Thank you so and much. I hope it keeps going. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible. Keep in touch by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at brianketing.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a particle from the belly of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Please help make the show better by filling out our listener survey linked to in the show notes. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us break the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. And remember, always be curious. Thank you.